So the Titanic was the biggest, strongest, most beautiful ship of its kind in its day. It was actually 900 feet long, it was 100 feet wide, 46,000 tons, built to be unsinkable. And even more importantly than all of that stuff, this ship inspired one of the most beautiful hit songs we've ever heard. Just take a listen. I just ruined your day. I'm sorry about that. But you got to ask, why did this thing sink? And you, I know you're, you're looking at me right now saying, it hit an iceberg. That is true. So maybe a better question is, why did it sink so quickly? Why did it sink so fast? There's actually new research. Like this group of researchers did years of work on why did this ship sink so quickly? And here's what they discovered. For all of its strength, and it was seriously one of the strongest ship of its, of its time, it had one fatal flaw. Substandard rivets throughout the hull, made from wrought iron, uh, were not able to withstand the pressure of the water coming into the boat. So if you if you saw the Leo DiCaprio movie, right? <laughs> Titanic hits the iceberg. That impact shred apart these substandard rivets. And as the water came in and put more pressure uh, on the hull, uh, those rivet tops ripped off and one researcher said it was like a zipper opening. The ship just opened up and tons of water came in very, very quickly. And rather than staying afloat for hours, which is what it should have done, even with the water coming in, it was underwater in minutes. This unsinkable ship, undone by the smallest, right, the most unnoticed, insignificant looking part. And human lives can be like this too. Strong, Right, beautiful external looking lives sunk by an unnoticed but fatal flaw. And Jesus teaches this principle about human life in this parable, which we call the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And he's particularly concerned, uh, not only that, that every human life can have this, these fatal flaws, which is true, but he is concerned in particular that religious people, people who would come and follow him, Christians, would have this fatal flaw dynamic to their lives, to look really, really good, but to not be very good. And so he tells this parable, and he starts this way. He says, there's two men walk into a temple, which sounds like the start of a really bad joke, but so two, two men walk into the temple. One is a Pharisee, and one is a tax collector. And throughout the parable, we'll see both come to the temple to pray. One of these men leaves justified before God, which means right in God's eyes. They've approached God correctly. And one of them leaves not justified by God. They didn't approach him correctly. And both in Jesus' day and now, right, the exact opposite person of what you would assume fits into each role. So I want to look at each of these characters in Jesus' parable briefly. Just describe them with, uh, with Jesus' words. And then apply what we learn from this parable to our own lives. So first, let's look at the Pharisee. So the Pharisee, what we're going to learn about him is that he looked really, really good, but he had a fatal flaw. He was fatally flawed. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke. We're in chapter 18, starting in verse 9. Listen to verses 10 to 13 here about how Jesus describes this Pharisee. 
Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This is the prayer of the Pharisee. Now, notice Jesus' emphasis when he has this Pharisee describe himself. Really, the first thing that hits you is how morally pure, especially by the standards of his day, this Pharisee was. So notice that the Pharisee prays alone by himself. I think the idea here is that he wants to be physically distanced and pure as a representation of his spiritual purity. There's lots of laws in the Old Testament about how our physical purity represents right, or symbolizes our spiritual purity before God. That's how you really understand lots of the book of Leviticus, for example. So the Pharisee, is, it's almost like a, an ancient practice of spiritual distancing, which is maybe too soon to make that joke. But that's, I mean, that's kind of what he's doing, right? Uh, so number one, he's, he's, he's very pious in this way. The second is the emphasis on uh, the lack of evil in his life. So he's very adamant. He says, God, I don't sleep around. I don't steal from people. I don't oppress people. Like this tax collector, for example. We're going to get to him in a minute. So there's, there's no right, external evil in his life. And he's very pious in other ways. He talks about uh, his tithing, and he's actually incredibly generous in his tithing. He tithes more than the Old Testament requires. He fasts consistently, even more than other Pharisees of his day would have done. And he prays regularly. You get the sense that he's here in the temple, and this is a regular practice in his life. This is a part of who he is. So all that to say, externally, Jesus is showing us this Pharisee is what we would today call a good person. He's a good person. Society looks on this guy. If you were to translate this Pharisee to today, he would walk down the street and we would say, there goes a respected, smart, powerful, responsible, faithful person. You would pull your kids close to you and say, little Johnny, little Susie, when you grow up, I want you to be like that person. Everyone knows how morally great this guy is externally. The Pharisee in Jesus' parable gets a lot right on the outside of his life, but he gets a few things fatally wrong, and this is Jesus' point. Two very important things, I think, at least, that Jesus highlights in this, that they're hinted here in the Pharisee's prayer to God. The first is that his prayer essentially exalts himself and not God. He talks about himself, first of all, in the entire prayer. And notice he doesn't really say, God, I thank you for you, And God, thank you for protecting me from sin and evil and temptation, right? That's an appropriate prayer. That's a prayer that's all over the Psalms. Thank you for keeping me from situations and people that would uh, tempt me to walk away from you. That's not inappropriate. But his prayer is not, God, thank you for doing that. It's, no, God, I thank you for me. Thank you for me. Thank you for how great I am. That's the gist of his prayer. He exalts himself over God. There's a pride here. That's number one. Number two is that he loved himself and not his neighbor. You could almost say that what the number one thing the Pharisee gets wrong, he gets everything else in his life right, except he cannot love this tax collector. And he treats him with contempt, not love, but contempt in his heart. Whether he would ever say it out loud to the tax collector or not, right? it becomes a part of his prayer life and his inner dialogue that, man, I'm so glad I'm not like that. And Luke clues us in, by the way, that 
These are the hard issues of the Pharisee in verse 9. Luke says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So we know this is the gist of what's wrong with the Pharisee's prayer and why when he leaves, he does not leave justified. Now, what does that maybe look like for us? What are our pharisaical uh, fatal flaws that we bring? Well, a couple of thoughts here. I think, number one, we can focus more on being better than on being good. We can care more about being better than, be- than actually being good. And you really see that, right? In the, at least I'm not like this tax collector, which seems to be the main focus of this Pharisee's prayer. We may say, Lord, help me be a better person. Help make me a good person like you. Make me holy like you. But what we really mean is just make me better than the people around me. Just as long as I'm better than them, I am okay. And you see this a lot in, in how we give mercy to ourselves, but we withhold it from others. So when, when, uh, when we make a mistake, right, we, we know, you know, I, I shouldn't have said that, but I was tired and I was hungry and I was stressed and, right, we have all the excuses in the world for ourselves. But when someone says something mean to us, we assume the worst about them and we say, I would never, I would never do that. We exaggerate our goodness and we minimize our sin or our faults, right? This is a sign that really what we're after is not to be good, but to be better. Just as long as we're better than them, we're okay. We take credit for the good things in our lives. We make excuses for the bad things in our lives, okay? We're more focused on being better than than on being actually good. Second thing, we can look down more then we look up. We can look down on others more than we look up to God. Right? If we get in this pattern of comparing ourselves to others, we say, well, actually, I'm not that bad. And what begins to happen is our eyes drift down from God's perfect holy standard to, well, how do I compare to the people around me? And suddenly my sin and problems and issues right, become minimized. And because of that, God's holiness gets minimized. We think, oh, I'm not that bad, and my problems aren't that big of a deal because God doesn't really care about what I struggle with. He cares about what they struggle with. You see, what that begins to do is actually pull God down and his standard for our lives down. And Jesus makes it clear that this is one of the fastest and easiest and most appealing ways to hell, is to pull God's standard down to where we are. So we can look around or down on others more than we look up to God. Last, we can move towards contempt faster than we realize. So if we get caught in a cycle like this Pharisee is, where, we, where our righteousness, our reputation, our standing before God is set more by the people around us than by him, what we'll begin to do is have contempt for the people around us really, really quickly. Contempt is the word right? Luke uses here. They have contempt for others in verse 9. Uh, It's a really powerful word. Essentially, what this word means is to see someone else as having no worth or value at all. It's where you get to a place where other people in your life, or specific people in your life, you don't care about their opinion, you don't care about their feelings, you don't care about their value or worth, right? You no longer think of them as someone, a human being equal to you or the same as you. There's something other and different. That's the idea here behind contempt. And it has a corrosive power in your relationship to God and your neighbor like nothing else. Uh, In fact, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, he wrote a book 
called Blink. And he uses a case study of around contempt uh, to make uh, his point. And he, he points out a group of researchers who specifically uh, uh, watched married couples and how they interact with one another. And they got so good at predicting which couples were going to make it long term and which ones were not. And what they discovered is that what it really came down to was contempt. If one married partner began to show signs of contempt for their spouse, right? Not, not caring about their feelings, dismissing their opinions, not listening anymore. The second that that happened, they said the chances of this relationship recovering dropped dramatically because contempt, more than so many other relationship inhibitors, has a corrosive power. And that's part of what Jesus is warning us here. This, this is antithetical to his teaching to love our neighbor, which is how Jesus summarizes the message of the Old Testament, to love God and to love our neighbor. When we begin to have contempt because of our self-righteousness, Jesus says, there's very little hope of leaving right in God's eyes from your time of prayer, just like this Pharisee. So this Pharisee does all these things that we can do too and more. And he does not leave right in God's eyes. So let's take a look now at the tax collector. And here's what we're going to learn about him. The tax collector looked really, really bad, but he was made right. Now remember with me here, you got to put yourself in this ancient context. This tax collector, by all external accounts, was a bad person societally. Okay? Tax collectors were notorious for stealing, for overcharging, not to mention they're part of a system of oppression by the Roman Empire, right? So imagine you're in occupied territory. The foreign oppressor of your country demands taxes from you. You can only pay them to certain people in your community who are empowered by the government to receive those funds. And their paycheck is whatever they decide to upcharge you for your taxes. So corruption was rampant among tax collectors. They always demanded more than was fair or right. And they worked for the bad guys. I mean, we would look at these people today and call them traitors, turncoats, greedy, corrupt, bad people. He's a sinner. I mean, no doubt about it. That's who he is. But he comes to the temple to pray and listen to his prayer. This is verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is his prayer. Now notice what he gets right. He stands in a place of humility before God. He can't even lift up his eyes to look to the heavenly place where he knows he doesn't even deserve to look at God. He beats his breast, which is a sign of grief and mourning. He acknowledges his sin. Just flat out, God, I am a sinner. I do not deserve to be in your presence. And he begs for God's mercy. He knows his only hope is the mercy of God. And he humbles himself in prayer before his creator. And Jesus says, this man left right in God's eyes. Now, that's not to say he doesn't have some major work to do in his life. That's not Jesus's point. Jesus' point is that this man's humility, despite his flaws in his life, this humility puts him in a place to receive mercy from God, where the Pharisee doesn't even think to ask for mercy. He doesn't even think to ask for forgiveness when he comes to a holy God. He is too prideful. So here's what I want to do. 
I want to talk about three practices we can start this week to avoid this fatal flaw of the Pharisee. So the first one here is let's confess daily. Let's confess daily. Uh, make confession a regular part of our prayer lives. I think for many of us, when we pray, we're praying about giving thanks for things in our lives, which is great. And then maybe asking God for things like direction or provision, that's great too. But I know sometimes I get in a habit of not confessing who and what I really am to God, honestly, and when I pray to him. And this is, listen, the point of that is not necessarily to make us feel bad because there is forgiveness uh, available to those who follow Jesus when we pray and we confess. But we need this reminder, not only that we have God's forgiveness, but that we need it. That's what confession does. And there's an easy believerism that can creep into our relationship with God where we think, oh, I'm forgiven, I don't need this, or I'm forgiven, we don't need to talk about who and what I really, really am. But this is one of the most uh, powerful tools we have against pride is to say, God, help me with my bitterness, my arrogance, my unforgiveness, my apathy, my anger, my frustration. God, help me with those things. I confess that they are a part of my life and a part of who I am, and I need your forgiveness and your mercy. Okay? To not confess over time can lead to a fatal flaw of pride. So let's confess daily. Second, love humbly. Let's love humbly. The Pharisee, his worldview basically says that the most holy, strong, and righteous people in the world, what sets them apart is that they have nothing to do with people like tax collectors. Right? That's, that's his whole attitude. God, thank you that I'm not like this guy and that I don't associate with people like him because that's what holy, righteous people do. Jesus comes on the scene and shatters that expectation. He is the most powerful, strong, righteous, morally pure person who has ever lived by a mile. And yet he spent so much of his time talking to, eating with, and praying with people like this tax collector. If he can do that, certainly we can too. One of the surest signs that we received God's mercy is when we can extend it to other people, especially other people that society says are not worth our time, are not worth our effort. Remember, this is part of what made Jesus' mission of love so radical. It's not just the greatness, the bigness of his love, but who his love is for. It's for anyone and everyone. And if we truly reckon with our brokenness, we're confessing daily, we know who we really are, then we of all people as Jesus' followers should know that even the worst-looking person is not that different from you and me when it comes to standing before God in need of mercy. There's no difference at all. We can love humbly in a way this Pharisee could not. Last practice here is meditate on mercy. Meditate on mercy. So some scholars, and I think they're right, they think that the way Jesus tells this uh, parable, that this isn't just any random time here at the temple, that these two men come to pray uh, during a sacrifice, a morning or evening sacrifice in the temple. And so actually what's happening is while they're praying, there's, there's a, an animal sacrifice, a ritual sacrifice happening before them, in front of them, as they pray. And here's, so, so if that's true, Think about this with me. Then what Jesus is showing us here is while a sacrifice is taking place, we have a Pharisee who's watching this happen. And remember, the whole sacrificial system is God's like daily reminder 
that every human being deserves death before him, if not for his mercy. Right? This animal sacrifice is a picture of what we deserve before God. That is the point. That is the whole point of the sacrificial system, is that everyone is terminal before God without his mercy. We have a Pharisee watching this happen, and all he can think to say is, God, I'm so glad I'm not like this guy. Wrong answer. Okay? You've drawn the wrong conclusion here. The tax collector, meanwhile, sees this sacrifice and he says, essentially in his prayer, God, make that sacrifice for me. Take my guilt and deal with it there and be merciful to me. And God says, he leaves justified in my eyes. Jesus' parable. This man leaves right. He has approached God the right way. And think about it. As this tax collector leaves, the more he considers and meditates on that sacrifice, which is a symbol of God's mercy, if he can put that in the very core of his life, the wiser and more gracious and more patient and more loving and more just, the more like Jesus he will become over time as he meditates on God's mercy. We have a sacrifice made on our behalf. This is the center of the Christian life. And we must never get over that. I'm afraid we get over that. I think this Pharisee like got over it. He got so accustomed to the temple and right the ritual and the everydayness of it that he forgot the magnitude of God's forgiveness, his mercy in his life. That's incredibly dangerous. To get over God's love and forgiveness is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. So meditate on the mercy of God that you and I have received. This is what we must do. So spend time now especially meditating on God's mercy. You know, we're going to start a new series here in the book of Romans uh, next week. And we're going to start by talking about remembering God's mercy for us. That's how this is so important. We must never get over it. We must never get beyond it. This, these practices and God's mercy will make for an unsinkable life.